0: Tony was like, don't mention anything about Neymar, Neymar, before I start rolling. And I was like, what the are you talking about? He was like, Neymar, whatever his name is. Uh, I have a good story. I I was like, I have no clue what you're talking about. I play poker with him. Can you tell me who he is? He's like
1: one of the five, ten most famous soccer players in the world.
0: Is he good at poker? No. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> you ready for this? Born ready. You remember your role? Yes. God, this feels so weird. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nate Silver. And, and this, this is, is Model Talk. Talk.
1: Nate. Wasn't that more coordinated being in person? It absolutely than on Zoom. was.
0: It's so much easier than on Zoom. For folks who are listening and not watching this podcast, we are in our New York City studio recording Model Talk together for the first time in a very long time. Is
1: this the first time we've done a podcast in person since the thing
0: happened? The- I have been in the studio since the thing happened and recorded okay. a podcast okay. in here, but okay. I wasn't okay. with you. This is our first time together since. Was it like Iowa? Yeah, Iowa twenty twenty.
1: And then like, oh, we're just gonna send people home for a couple days, ride out the COVID thing, see what happens, man.
0: Oh God, don't let's not talk about it. You know what? It's twenty twenty two. I knew that was a lie game. And you know why we're here? (laughs) You know why we're here? Because we are launching the twenty twenty two forecast model today. How does it feel? Is it today or tomorrow? Well. People are listening to this tomorrow, so it's Thursday in people's lives. Okay, it's Wednesday for us.
1: Yeah, it's Wednesday for. I believe in
0: transparency. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull back that curtain. Be transparent. Yeah. In case the numbers have changed at all since the ones that we cite today. No, we, we should we should
1: stipulate that, right? I don't. If there's some big new poll that comes out in Georgia or something, right? Then that Absolutely. might be different than what we're talking Things about. Things
0: might but be but, off yeah. a little bit, but okay. I don't want to bury the lead too much, so. Here is what the twenty twenty two midterms forecast model shows. Republicans are favored to win the House with an eighty eight percent chance. The Senate is essentially a toss up with Republicans at a fifty five percent chance of winning that chamber. Fifty three now. Fifty three down, 53% We're down of Change. Oh my goodness. You got to keep me honest. Yeah. And here are some of the key gubernatorial races that we also have a forecast model for this year. Michigan is likely Democrat, while Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Oregon lean towards Democrats. Arizona, Nevada, and Kansas are toss-ups. Florida and Texas are solid Republican. And Georgia is likely Republican. Nate, that was a lot of information. So we're going to take a step back and we're going to go- How did Oregon get in there? Well, this I mean, mean, it's I'm kind not, of Oregon's a nice state. That it's just it's likely nice democratic, I, okay. or that it's just lean democratic and not likely democratic. It's a
1: nice state. I don't really think very much about Oregon, though. I have to be honest.
0: Well, this is why I'm thinking about Oregon. I think people think the Pacific Northwest is solid Democratic territory, but they might be surprised to learn that Oregonians, Oregonians are a little unhappy with their Democratic governor and that Republicans seem to potentially have a chance to pick up the governor's mansion.
1: I mean, Oregon is a white, somewhat working class state, sort of.
0: Okay, so you're not surprised.
1: I, can I be honest? I'm not sure I had given any thought. To the Oregon gubernatorial race. You
0: just ran the numbers. Just ran didn't the numbers. Even look, yeah, that's so rude. Yeah, Nate, apologize to the people of Oregon. I'm sorry, Oregon.
1: You're probably in my top 15 states or so. So there's a consolation prize.
0: I mean, th- that's a pretty good that's consolation pretty good. prize. I don't know that I would give that to Oregon, but 15 um, is a lot. Yeah, it is. Well, there's a lot of states, but let's let's take it back a second before we jump on the governor's train. An 88 percent chance that Republicans win control of the House, a 53% chance that Republicans win control of the Senate. You know, you sort of tweak the model a little bit, get it up to date, plug in all the data, and this is what it spits out. Like, you don't necessarily know how things are going to end up while you're in the process. Does this match your expectations of the political environment before you delved back into the model this year?
1: um I was surprised that the Senate was a toss-up. Actually, when I was initially building the model, right, mm-hmm. I had you take the version from 2020, right, and so in 2020, how many Senate seats did Democrats start out with, like 48 or something, then got up to 50 or what yeah. was it? So I had them with two fewer seats than they had, right? So they had both the Senate and the House as like 90 percent problem. I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense that you're going to have a, it's a midterm year, the generic ballot favors the GOP, Biden's unpopular. I'm like, oops, actually, <laughs> they I, have this, have 50, I haven't yeah. revised this variable yet. If they currently have 50, then the Senate kind of goes more to like 50-50. But I think it makes sense because, first of all, all the Democrats who are up for re-election are in states that Biden won, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you have John Tester in Montana who might lose in 2024 or Joe Manchin or Heidi Heitkamp or or these kind of give me Republican races, right? They're all in states that- uh, You
0: know that Heidi Heitkamp isn't still a senator, right?
1: I, I'm i aware of that, right? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> But there were some races where T.S. Puckett and Democrats were kind of drawing dead, right? Yeah. Where things have shifted. They, maybe they were lucky to win in the first place. And there aren't any of those this year, right? All of the races for Democrats are salvageable. It's one thing, mm-hmm. right? Number two, like there are other Biden states that Democrats have a shot to pick up seats. I think we actually have them- Slightly ahead in Pennsylvania. But still, I mean rated are, a toss-up. But rated slightly toss-up, ahead
0: right. if you look at the, you know, actual you know, problems. In
1: Wisconsin, the polling is very competitive. I mean, I think Ron Johnson's a problematic nominee, right? They have a puncher's chance of winning in North Carolina, although it's a state's often teased Democrats, but they're not purely playing defense. If they gain the Pennsylvania seat, then all of a sudden the GOP has to pick up two, and that's and that's maybe like easier said than done given uh that you have i think fairly suboptimal republican candidates in in some of these races
0: i mean so one question i have here is that the generic ballot currently shows republicans leading with about 2 points we generally see that as the midterm year wears on whatever party is out of power tends to gain in the generic ballot the generic ballot being the polling question where pollsters ask Americans, if the election were held today, would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat for Congress without a specific name attached to that poll? And that tends to be a good indicator of the political environment overall. So is this model based on if that 2% holds until election day? Because often we kind of don't expect that it will. We think that the picture is gonna get better for Republicans as we approach election day if history holds.
1: No, if if the two percent holds and Democrats would have a chance of keeping the House as well as the Senate. Really, I mean, our break-even number is about zero, right? If Democrats win the popular vote for the House and their even money are a little better to also control the majority of seats in the House,
0: and that hasn't been the case in the past, right? It's been that Democrats have had to win the House popular vote by say two points or something like that. It
1: depends on the year, so people so think it's just about like redistricting and how the maps are biased it's a little bit more complicated than that it also has to do with incumbency even though incumbency is not the advantage it once was by a lot democrats do control the slight majority of seats now so in some of the closer races they might have an incumbent the incumbents who survived in 2020 which is not a great year for democrats may be reasonably strong right but no the issue is that first of all the two points isn't really two points. It's two points among registered voters, but not among the likely voter electorate. So that's already more like four.
0: Plus four Republican.
1: Um, and then our model looking at other factors, looking at historical norms, thinks eventually Republicans will win the popular vote by around six points for the House. And so, and so, yeah. So the two so is
0: that's what these forecast numbers are based on, is Republicans winning the popular vote for the House by six points.
1: Right. And at that point, then it's not a matter of, race by race, right? It's a matter of how big the wave might be. But, you know, but there are, it's only June. Mm -hmm. That could be wrong. I mean, I do think you have, uh, we'll talk about this, I'm sure. I think the Dobbs decision, meaning the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, is a huge factor. It's not, I don't know if it's really even kind of factored in the model per se. There have been some generic ballot polls that have come out, right? But like, I think that's kind of, um, well, we'll talk about it. It's important.
0: Yeah, we got a lot to talk about when it comes to current events and how it might shape politics and therefore the forecast over the next four months. I do want to mention, though, before we get into that, if this sort of holds, if the modal outcome that Republicans win the popular vote in the House by six points holds, how many seats are they looking at? picking up? You know, for some context, Republicans gained 63 seats in 2010, a, a similar year in that Obama had just won. It was the first midterms after Obama had won. Democrats gained 41 seats in 2018 right after Trump had won. What are we looking at in 2022?
1: So I think it would be in the mid to high 20s or maybe the low 30s, which on the one hand isn't that many, but there are a couple of things to consider. One is that Democrats already lost A fair number of seats in 2020. Usually, when you win the presidency, you gain seats in the House. Mm -hmm. That was not true for Democrats in 2020. So, they kind of, you know, you can kind of tack on to whatever number Republicans gain, if they gain, the 11 or whatever it was Democrats lost last year. Or how many was it? Let me look at that. Google 2020 U.S. House election. They lost 13 seats. So, kind of, you almost want to have like a plus 13 to whatever number it is, right? Two, one of the big effects of redistricting is to reduce the number of competitive districts. And so, so there is a little bit of a ceiling unless things get really, really out of hand. If the GOP wins the generic ballot or the popular vote by eleven points, then okay, right. But those are pretty big things that might contain the number of seats, but still it like kind of does I mean like the it would be a large enough majority to be a functional Republican majority in in the House, right? Now you're picking off a couple of moderates here and there.
0: For sure. So that's the top of the bell curve is that Republicans pick up twenty some seats in the House. But, of course, there are long tails to that curve, and a lot can happen between now and November, both in Republicans' favor and Democrats' favor. You began to mention some of the factors that could play into this, but just for the sake of listing them, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, along with issuing other significant conservative opinions. The January 6th committee heard testimony this week that former President Trump directed rally attendees to the Capitol on January 6th, knowing that they were armed and attempted to go to the Capitol himself. This is happening amid a backdrop of continuing war in Europe, four-decade high inflation, talk of recession. I don't even know how this fits into this anymore or if it does, but there's still COVID to some extent. Uh, Did I miss anything?
1: Uh, there's a lot of code. It's pride month. Happy pride month. Thank you. (laughs) No, I, well, look, I think you are missing the fact that there has been, and this is why I think one reason why I think the abortion decision is important, right? I mean, there had been like kind of a cultural backlash Mm -hmm. against Democrats, right? And I think they had begun to kind of stake out some issues that were relatively unpopular, kind of on identity, politics, stuff, um, however you want to label it, and- I think the Roe decision, plus kind of, frankly, the turn in the GOP toward, you know, 1990s style homophobia and transphobia and stuff like that. I think kind of all of a sudden, like, Democrats have issues now where it's like they're fighting the moral majority again, and and the moral majority was not a majority and not that popular, right? Um, It's like, yeah, we want basic rights for LGBT people and some ability to get an abortion, right? You know, those are much more popular positions than fighting over the bucket of stuff that Glenn Youngkin won on in Virginia, for example.
0: Okay, but then this is, of course, the follow-up question, which is, does all of that stuff trump the economy, inflation? Like, To put it in perspective, when looking at polls about what issues Americans think are the most important, in the polling that we've done, and of course, with Ipsos, and of course, this was before the Dobbs decision, but after the leak, It was like 9% of Americans said that it was one of their top three issues, whereas large percentages of Americans say that they're worried about the economy, they're worried about inflation, and then next on down the line is crime and gun violence and then immigration and things like that. How does this figure when it comes to the whole picture of American politics?
1: I mean, at the very least, it gives the Democratic base some reason to turn out, right? I mean, it's a very credible claim that, like, the future of the Supreme Court will be altered based on whether Democrats control a majority or not, right? It's not some pie in the sky. Oh, we'll kind of pass universal health care. It's like, no, if you have 50 Democrats in the Senate versus 49 and there's another court vacancy, that makes a pretty big difference, potentially. And as currently construed, you know, abortion is an issue that unites kind of both the left and the centrist faction of the Democratic base. Mm -hmm. As is guns, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. So guns being an issue that I think also maybe. In some abstract sense, Democrats would be better off if there were more pro-life Democrats or pro-gun Democrats, right? But it's an urban party now. And so those are issues and attacks on gay rights, right? These are all issues that like avoid the infighting among the Democratic base that they might have had over like COVID policy, for example. So
0: we're talking COVID schools, defund the police, abolish ICE, the sort of things that floated around the Democratic left during the Trump years.
1: You know, more. I mean, Trump was also a unifying factor for for Democrats, right? Yeah. Um, And
0: so in his absence, you're saying they've sort of fractured a bit, but that these issues pull them together
1: for sure. Right.
0: One analysis that I've heard is that abortion may not affect the national picture so much, but that it could really affect state level races. And you're saying that you do think it will shape the national picture and, and we'll find out. We'll see how much polling changes in the coming months. And to what extent Americans say that it's a top issue for them. But are there specific states where you think that the question of abortion does really change the picture for the senator gubernatorial race?
1: I mean, a, a state like Wisconsin, which I believe uh, had an abortion ban go into effect, despite being a purple state. And I think that like the Republican nominee in that state, Rebecca Cleefish, I think I'm saying that right. Um, you are. Has, as a former resident of Wisconsin. There you go. I think I said no abortion, even in the case of rape or incest. And so, so that's a state where swing state, all of a sudden Democrats kind of get to take the mainstream position there, right? And you'd have to go kind of state by state. But I mean, that's the other reason why I think like, I just don't buy at all this argument that abortion will be kind of an issue that fades because it's going to be debated actively at the state level. You'll have lots of Republicans who say, uh, I was going to say politically incorrect, but very conservative things that aren't very popular, right? You're going to have active fights for the legislation. You're going to have Republicans maybe talking to their base about elect us because they will institute a national abortion ban, potentially. You know, it's not the only decision the Supreme Court will make. I mean, I, I just think it's like Roe v. Wade being overturned is one of the most significant decisions made by the Supreme Court in the past half century, right? I mean, this is a this is a big deal, and I think people are kind of missing the forest for the trees if they if they kind of say, "Oh, it's just one from among." many issues and also the other thing too about it is like it's it's like an active thing that's happening now right mm-hmm. one big problem democrats have with january 6th is that ultimately the insurrection failed we can debate how close it was to failing we can debate what damage it did but ultimately joe biden won the presidency democrats actually won control of the senate and so so it failed you're talking about kind of a hypothetical or a warning for next time This is something that's happening now. There are many states in America where you cannot get an abortion or at least not under broadly universal conditions right now. And so it's like it's something it's unusual for the party that's not in power to enact, in this case, through the court, a policy change that has profound immediate effects. And Americans are in some sense risk averse and change averse. And so so they tend to backlash against big, sudden, unexpected change.
0: Okay. So it sounds like you're saying that January 6th may not play a role in the 2022 midterms. Of course, I mentioned the testimony that we heard yesterday in the public committee hearings. I think under different circumstances, if we hadn't been launching the model uh, today, we might have rushed an emergency podcast. People were very busy. Uh, Did that change the picture at all? The fact that we learned, okay, Trump had been informed that the mob essentially was armed, still directed to them, them to the Capitol, tried to go himself. Is that the kind of thing that grabs headlines for a day? Or is that the kind of thing that, okay, this could be a legal issue for Trump. And if we find out that he's going to be prosecuted between now and election day, that changes the picture in some way or another.
1: I mean, if Merrick Garland decides to prosecute Trump, then that could be the kind of issue that dominates everything else. I mean, look, I think the hearings have been pretty effective. I mean, I think there's an issue with like, Democrats are kind of saying, oh, there are these four or five or six different things, all of which are an existential crisis, right? So attacks on democracy, but also gun violence and climate change, right? They don't talk about that much, frankly. And uh, racism and like all these things. And eventually, like, people start to tune you out if you say kind of everything is, is a crisis, right? I mean, maybe mm-hmm. there is some type of moderate Republican voter who, um, but even the moderate Republican voter might be fine with Republicans in Congress, and they're more concerned about Trump in twenty twenty four. I might not support him for right, so have more for that reason, on right? The presidential. I mean, it might have some indirect effect in the sense that, like, why do you have these in some states underachieving Republican candidates? Well, it's because the party is not very tolerant of its moderates, right? You probably risk losing your seat in Congress, losing in a primary if you're a moderate, and so I think the fact that the GOP is is very right-wing, right wing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, does help Democrats indirectly in terms of candidate quality.
0: Okay, so let's use that to pivot back to some of the specifics of the model. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. (laughs) I was frankly kind of surprised when I looked at the model for governors and saw that Michigan is likely Democratic. Of course, it's a very purple state at this point, and it's gonna be a Republican leaning year. This may be an example of what you're saying, which is that Republicans are having difficulty with candidate recruitment and keeping the moderate flank of their party intact in some of these primaries. I was also a bit surprised that Wisconsin was lean Democratic, Pennsylvania also lean Democratic, why aren't those toss-ups in your mind?
1: Well, because the polls show the Democrats ahead in those states. <laughs> so it's not my simple. mind, right? But I mean, so talk
0: to the I mean, but like Also considering that we expect the polls to probably shift in Republicans' favor as we get closer in, okay, to election so day. In,
1: in Michigan and Pennsylvania, you have Republicans who I think expressly were involved in the January six attacks. And in Wisconsin, you have a GOP likely nominee who is no abortion even in the case of rape and incest, right? That's how you lose in a Republican year in a purple state, is you nominate people like that.
0: So that is the exact thing that you're talking about. Here's another surprise for me. In the Senate race, it looks like Arizona is likely Democratic for Mark Kelly, and it's likely Republican for Herschel Walker in Georgia, beating Raphael Warnock. Well... Or has it changed since the last time I left? I have news. What's your news?
1: Literally, as we were recording this, Quinnipiac just had a poll showing Warnock up 10 in Georgia. What? Breaking. Does news. that
0: change the forecast?
1: It will when it gets entered in. Yeah. Um But it also has Kemp and Abramson dead heat, which I'm not sure I buy. Um, yeah, then maybe that poll but, like, is just Walker, off. I don't know because like a lot has come out about Herschel Walker. There had not been a lot of recent polling in that state. So that was actually the race that we had as the most likely Republican pickup. And now it's probably going to go to, you know, toss up Berlin uh, Democrat. Just based on that one poll? There have been a lot of polls. So this, I mean, one thing I should mention is like, we usually uh, launch this model like in August or September, where there's more polling. Right? This is early for us, and like in some races, individual polls will make a difference because like there's no, it's not like you have ten polls and you drop one to the average. Like you might have the first poll in a month or two months or something.
0: So maybe I'll ask this question more structurally: Which do you think is likelier for Republicans to win in the fall, Arizona or Georgia?
1: Um, I guess I. St- I don't know. Like, personally, I mean, I think the model will still say Georgia. But, you know, but also in Arizona, they have this um, Peter Thiel, likely endorsed candidate named Blake Masters, who does, I think, not have much of the of electoral experience. I mean, you know, it, I mean, it doesn't take that much to have, like, you know, even like Dr. Oz <laughs> in Pennsylvania has very poor favorable ratings. He's seen as being a carpetbagger. He he barely lives in Pennsylvania, right? Not experienced again. I mean, so just like if you nominate like three or four bad Senate candidates out of like eight competitive races, then that's how you go from being pretty heavy favorites to in a toss-up situation.
0: Okay, here's another example to continue the theme. Eric Greitens in Missouri, likely Republican. We're currently giving Eric Greitens chance of winning a 94% chance. The model is giving that. He's really controversial. Is that just there's some things that partisanship can't overcome?
1: I mean, that's the sort of race where, I mean, you basically need Missouri is now a very red state, right? So you probably need both a very poor candidate and a very Democratic gear, right? When like when Doug Jones won in Alabama, when was that like late 2017? I mean, that was a time when like Trump's approval rating was at 37 Mm percent or something like that.
0: Close to where Biden's is now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in an environment where Trump won a second term, then the Missouri race is when we're talking about, oh, can Democrats pull off an upset there, it's just pretty hard. Who's a Democrat candidate there even in Missouri?
0: The Democratic candidate in Missouri is get ready, Lucas Kuntz. Okay. Yeah. Although there's an asterisk next to his name on the model, which means that they haven't had their primaries yet. So we will uh, find out. I mean,
1: look, this is none of this is it's all statistical, right? Candidate quality kind of matters. Less than it used to, but still a fair bit. Maybe more than. I mean, there's kind of conventional wisdom, like, oh, it's all about partisanship and the candidates don't matter. That's not that's not really true. But there are limits, and Missouri is probably in. It's likely to be Republican leaning year. Missouri is probably past that past that limit. Probably. I mean, there is a six percent chance or whatever, and that six percent is not zero. But yeah,
0: I want to talk a little bit about some changes that you've made to the model and a little bit of where the uncertainty lies. But before we do that, wrapping up on the Senate, and I want to focus on it because I think. That is the place where it's really unknown which party will end up in control after November. Is it clear what the tipping point state is at this point? If we want to watch for control of the Senate, my guess is that you're going to say Nevada or Pennsylvania. Am I correct? And do you have a preference between those two for which is the tipping point state? I mean, TBH. Yeah.
1: I don't think the tipping point kind of upset, interesting for... For the Senate? Senate? Races. Why not? Because all these races kind of matter, right? They all have the same number. They all, it's not like you have one state that's like worth more electoral votes or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, any of these competitive races, and also they're they're a little bit less
0: correlated. correlated.
1: I mean, they are somewhat correlated. Well, but it's like,
0: not the same candidate running in right. every state. Obviously, there are different candidates, so they have their own quirks. And, like, Dr. Oz isn't running in Nevada.
1: Right. So there's, like, no, you know— In presidential elections, there was, like, no chance that Biden was going to win, like, Texas unless he won, like, New Mexico or something, right? Mm -hmm. And in the Senate races, you can have, like, a flukish result where it's off by five or ten points based on the particular candidates in the state. And so, therefore, I think all these competitive races are are important.
0: Although I will say of the senate races that we're watching the two big toss-ups that don't have a sort of direction in which they're leading do look to be pennsylvania and nevada at this point so i'm sure we'll hear a lot about those races you have made some changes to this model since 2020 that are a little wonky and of course we're gonna have lots more model talks between now and november 8th and we can get wonkier on those model talks but by
1: the way can i say yeah november 8th man that's a long time in november Yeah, I I like like the November 2nd, get the election out of the way. Me too. Also because my birthday is November 5th. I want the election to be over by
0: my birthday. So I bring up the changes that you made to the model. One, because they're wonky and we like to get wonky sometimes and we will get even wonkier. But two, because they actually reflect some changes in our politics over the past two years, but maybe even longer than that. So what are some of the changes that you've made?
1: So, and none of these are huge, but they kind of are consistent with a more polarized electorate right um one change is to change how we look at fundraising data so in the absence of polling or in the presence of polling for that matter fundraising is one of the better objective indicators traditionally of candidate strength it reflects some degree of grassroots support it reflects also it's nice to have money to spend on the race right Mm -hmm. reflects how organized a candidate is um but increasingly, fundraising is co- occurring to people who are not your constituents. You see a candidate advertise somewhere on Act Blue in a different state, and you donate to them. If you're a Democrat, for example, I think Jamie Harrison, the Democrat from South Carolina, raised, I believe, a record amount of money in his race against Lindsey Graham, right? Very and little of that was really from Democrats in South Carolina. He wound up losing by 10 points. And so, one thing to look at is what if you only look at or give a bonus to contributions from within the state, and it turns out they're more predictive. So, basically, now any contribution from within the same state. We multiply by five. It's a big factor, right? Mm-hmm. It's much more predictive than out of state contributions. Um, and by the way, I don't want to be too prescriptive to readers, but mm. like don't get suckered in to, to donating, donating to better or working to <laughs> some candidate who, yeah, no, don't donate to some candidate who already is twenty million dollars in an uphill or I mean, right?
0: likewise to Republicans donating to, The Republican candidate who's running against AOC, like right, and you have you have stuff like that, right? You have these Democrats in like very Republicans in
1: very blue districts who are like, I can knock off so and so, don't count me out, right? And then then they lose by fifty, right? You know, again, people people spend their money in dumb ways sometimes. Breaking news. (laughs) So that's one change.
0: The role of partisanship itself is also another change that you've made in the model, right?
1: Yeah, one thing I was curious about is, well, what if you just take a very simple. So we have this fundamentals, quote unquote, component of the model, which means find everything that can predict the race, every objective indicator in the absence of polling. And it's a pretty complicated formula with seven or eight different variables. You have a lot of data in congressional races, right? You know, 400 and some races every year. So you can actually do some real empirical work more than just kind of the guesswork you might do with the presidency. But as a gut check, I said, what if you do a simple model where it's just the Generic ballot plus the partisan lean. So, explaining that, let's say that a state like Texas leans Republican by six points relative to the national average, and the generic ballot favors the GOP by four points, right? Then you'd expect the GOP to win in Texas by 10 points. Simple math, right? So, how is that simple forecast compare against the more complicated forecast that our model has been using? The answer is that it's actually almost as good as a more complicated forecast.
0: Wait, how? Okay. On a personal level, having developed this entire model, how does that feel to sort of put all of the work into collecting this data and studying past elections and then partisanship comes in and is just like, hey, I'm pretty predictive,
1: too? I mean, the fancy one still is better, right? Yeah. Um, But they they give different answers sometimes, right? And so combining them where you basically use two-thirds of the fancy version and one-third of the lo-fi version – Turns out to be better than either one taken alone.
0: But so when you saw how close they were, like how you know using the fancy version and the lo-fi version and you compared them and you saw that they were quite close and how predictive they were, were you like F- no, you were happy i I'm not really you were like the attached w- to our model what? Yeah, the model's not your baby? Not anymore, man. not, not anymore. anymore. Not you've anymore. sort of it's now it's, it's a now teenager. a teenager, it's off on its own doing its own thing yeah Wow. What college is it going to go to?
1: Uh, I don't think it's going to go to college. Really? Is yeah, it going to be gonna a crypto go, billionaire? It's going to be a crypto billionaire, or, you know, yeah.
0: Has it moved to Miami yet? Obviously. Obviously. Yeah. The model now lives Although in Miami. Although, Fivey doesn't
1: like Miami, I don't think. Fivey doesn't like Miami. It's, it's a it fur.
0: That's fur. Fivey has fur. Yeah. Where's Fivey going to move then?
1: I think Fivey lives in Vermont. Fivey lives in
0: Vermont. Okay, well, let us know is Vermont listeners yeah. if, you, if you encounter Fivey. So. I think there are a couple more changes. We can talk about them maybe in another podcast. Give people Yeah, one of the Yeah, so we to.
1: we assume there's a little bit more correlation between races now, not at the presidential level, but like you did in 2020 have literally like every toss-up race that your Times designated in the house was won by a Republican, right? So, you know, you can definitely have systematic polling errors in the house in the same way that you have. In fact, the polls are actually worse in races for Congress than for the presidency in 2020. So Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because Republicans overperformed Trump. Yeah. Last question here. You know, we dabble. We don't dabble. We live. We make our living off uncertainty. There's a 12% chance that Democrats keep control of the House. There's similarly like a 10% chance that there's an absolute Republican blowout that maybe sets Republicans on course to have a supermajority in the Senate by 2024 or whatever, you know, whatever. What do you think are the key sources of uncertainty between now and election day?
1: I mean, this doesn't seem that hard to answer, right? I mean, consider all the issues that we've discussed. These are all still pretty dynamic, right? Whether Mm -hmm. inflation continues to be at 8% or, or rises or declines, right? Whether there's some new COVID wave that has some of the deadliness of previous waves or it slows down totally to trickle and it's totally off the radar, right? Those are, seem like both quite possible outcomes, right? Abortion is going to be a very actively debated issue still. Who knows what revelations there will be further about January 6th and whether there'll be a decision to prosecute Trump. You know, these news making Republican candidates who are experienced or very right wing or or both, right? Or, or have to secret make, children or secret children or five, right? We'll continue to like make news, right? And so it's it's a very dynamic cycle. On top of that, we have had several years recently where the polling wasn't great. Those errors have tended to favor Republicans recently, but doesn't mean it's an eternal law of nature that they always will. So yeah, there's lots of lots of uncertainty.
0: Nate, all that put together, we live in a pretty crazy world.
1: We do, we do, and that's why we have the model to.
0: Simplify it for us to
1: simplify just the world put numbers to into it. just a couple of numbers, which is how you should look at Everything really are these just reduce everything to one number
0: are these unprecedented times Nate?
1: in these unprecedented times <laughs> uh, They kind of are I mean we talked about you know, you get my general like Pessimism about the American Experiment
0: yeah, are you pessimistic?
1: Are you how can't you be
0: I don't know I'm like um, I'm still optimistic Am I going to get hate mail for being optimistic? Uh, I'm like optimistic about life. I don't know if I'm specifically optimistic about some aspects of American politics, but I still move through life with a sense that like things aren't so bad.
1: I mean, there is this gap between if you ask people the direction of the country, they're very pessimistic. If you ask people about how happy are they in their personal lives, then they're still pretty happy, although less than they were before. So there is that Gap, Uh, Personal
0: optimism, global pessimism.
1: Country Very real. I mean, I do think Democrats have this, a little bit of this issue where like, if you say everything is kind of a crisis, then that's kind of an off-putting message on some level to voters. Uh, I think there's a sense sometimes that like, you know, the progressive messaging is you kind of can't really have any fun, right? You're not allowed to like go out and see people under COVID, right? Or you have to be very careful of what you do and say. And again, this is like, again, why we kind of get back to like, the abortion decision—it's mm-hmm. not just a decision, but also all these laws that were triggered or we're going to be argued for, right? Is like, it just totally resets the debate, the culture wars from kind of progressive scoldiness to <laughs> to the revival of like the religious right, and I, I think that just does a big favor to Democrats.
0: All right, well, let's leave things there. We are going to have plenty of future model talks, so listeners, if you have any questions after. Listening to this or watching this on YouTube, please send them our way at podcasts at five thirty eight com. You can also tweet at us as usual. Nate, where are you off to next? Back to Las Vegas. A little bit more Las Vegas. A little bit more Las Vegas. Yeah. God, can't quit it. Do you see yourself after you're done writing this book? Are you still going to spend a lot of time in Las Vegas?
1: I like Las Vegas. I'm mean, going to have friends there, and yeah, no, I like I like I like Las Vegas.
0: Yeah. You ever see yourself living there?
1: Not permanently i mean it is like the thing about like las vegas is like i am when i'm there i'm like they're doing a ton of work right people associate las vegas with having fun but like often i'll have like um
0: it's oh it's not just a girl's trip to las vegas every other week you're not like blowing cash on the strip i mean i'm not gonna say anything more because i don't want to yeah
1: no because i'll wake up and i'll have some like book interview or like some 538 work, right? And so I'll do that for several hours and then maybe I'll play poker for like 10 or 12 hours. And like, so you're like working like these like you're 14 or 15 hours. poker hour... for
0: 10 or 12 hours a day? If
1: you're in a tournament, then you can't decide when to quit. You have to keep playing until you I mean, bust out of the tournament. That doesn't sound fun. I mean, maybe it isn't fun. Maybe deep down, I'm, you know, yeah.
0: That's a hamster wheel. And are you playing all this poker because you want to play it or because it's also like the backdrop to the book?
1: I mean, I like poker. It's a way, you know, all the bad shit going on in the world, man. Just play my poker hand. I don't have to worry about that too much, right? Just have to worry about, like, should I re-raise with my ace-king? Okay, so, oxygen. like,
0: your poker is my runs along the West Side Highway.
1: Uh, sort of. They are kind of similar okay. in certain ways, right? You have to be pretty self-motivated. Like, neither activity is, like, exactly packed with excitement. I mean, poker has these, like, bursts of Mm -hmm. Exciting when you run very deep in a tournament or get a really big hand, right? It's exciting, but like it's a lot of patience and kind of waiting around, right? So yeah,
0: you can do some reading at the table. Okay, yeah. yeah, All right, well, we're gonna have to talk more about that on future Model Talk episodes, but for now, thank you, Nate. Thank you, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Anna Rothschild is on video editing. Nash Consing, Kevin Ryder, and Brianna Cox are in the control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director, and Emily Vanezky is our intern. You can get in touch, as I said, by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.
1: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers.
0: There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
1: For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.